Welcome to Thinker Talk, where we chat with thinkers who are turning ideas into reality. I'm Joey Caffone, co-founder of Baron Fig, recording in New York City. Today, we're here with Caroline Weaver, the New York City pencil expert and collector, author of The Pencil Perfect, and owner of CW Pencils. We're going to talk about pencils, of course, writing a book, running a business, and our new collaboration. Caroline, thank you for coming on, Eureka. It's a pleasure. Hi, thank you for having me. All right. So I I mean, this is like the most obvious question, and I know you've been asked a lot, but humor me. And why pencils? How did that start? I have had a really profound love for pencils for as long as I can remember. I can't even really date it back to a particular moment. And I, I've always loved them because they're, they're so simple. They're made out of only a handful of things and their function is dependent on other things. It's dependent on a sharpener. It's dependent on time. And I just love the physicality of it and the tactility of it. And it's just kind of been the tool that I've always used for everything besides signing a check and things that you're not really supposed to use a pencil for. And I've always collected them and been interested in the histories of these pencils that come from all over the world. And it was just kind of always the joke amongst my friends that if I could have any job in the entire world, I would be sitting all day in a tiny, tiny shop talking to people about pencils. Wow. So you're literally living the dream. Yeah. Literally living the dream. Was there a turning point where you were like, I can actually do this for a living? Yeah. It, I mean, it was one of those things where maybe after like a year of having this like silly idea in my head, I thought like, oh, well, maybe this could be a real thing. And I started crunching some numbers and then was like, no, there's no way like this can't exist. It can't be sustainable. And then I moved to New York City and had a job I didn't love. I wasn't really sure what I was doing. I had a really rough first winter here. And there was really, really just a day when I woke up and thought like, all right, like this is probably crazy, but if there's any time for me to try, it's now while I'm young and have few responsibilities. And I just decided to go for it against my better judgment even. Yeah, no, I, I totally can relate. So what did you do next? Did you just quit your job? I, yeah, I, st- well, I started doing some research and figured out what my general plan would be. And then I quit my job and I spent a summer getting everything set up, um, emailing companies, buying small amounts of inventory to store in my closets, setting up a website, doing all of like the legal things that go into starting a business. And then by the end of the summer, I was pretty much ready to launch a website and it just kind of started there. Oh, I didn't know that. So the website came first. Yeah, the website happened in early November of 2014. And then the shop came in March of 2015. Wow. Was that part of the plan to go from web to physical store? Oh, yeah. The plan was always to have a physical store. I mean, I, I'm not that interested in online and having an online store, but I understand that it's one of those things that you, in order to make a retail business sustainable in this day and age. You have to. It's not really an option. And because I was kind of scared, I didn't know what was going to happen because with a with a shop like this where there's not really anything comparable, there's almost no market research that can be done. So I had no idea what was going to happen. So I thought it'd be safer to like start a website quietly, get that out there, see if people responded to it, and then decide what like when it would be appropriate to open a physical shop. And it happened much sooner than I thought it would. That's cool. I remember Adam, my co-founder, we started Baron Fig in 2013. We launched it in March 2014. 
And I guess you started the store one year later, yeah. right? March 2015. And he lived in that neighborhood. And he was like, yo, dude, you're not going to believe this. He's like, there's a store in my neighborhood that sells pencils, just pencils. And I'm like, only pencils? He goes, just pencils. And he uh, that conversation went back and forth like that for like three or four times. And finally, he was like, dude, you have got to check this out. It's amazing. And since then, we have uh, been there many, many times. <laughs> and it blows me away how many different products you guys have. Yeah. I mean, where do you find all these pencils? I didn't know what... I, I just... Damn. Please tell me more. Well, um, in the beginning, it was much harder because there were maybe probably about 40% of what we have now are brands that I was already very familiar with. And so those are the ones I chased after first and some of the kind of oddball ones that I knew people weren't going to know about. I had studied in London and done a lot of traveling when I was in college. So I had discovered a lot of things while I was doing that, which were very helpful. And I mean, a lot of it, even now, three years later, a lot of it is just like deep diving on the internet or in conversation with other people that I don't often even know and finding these like weird obscure brands and far reaches that just don't ever get exported because they exist strictly to serve the needs of where they're based. And a lot of it is just me emailing, like just begging these people to sell me something. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of times it's not a matter of whether or not they want to sell it to me. It's a matter of figuring out how to like logistically and legally get it to me because so many of these companies just have never shipped to the U S and they're like, all right, but like, how do we do it? And then I have to, figure it out for them usually. But um, th- it's it's easier now too because we've had so much press and because so many people know about us where I'm constantly getting emails from people that I don't know who are like, oh, like, have you seen this? Like, did you know that they make pencils in Egypt and stuff like that? And so it's, it's a little bit easier now. Mostly people come to me. That's cool. You have a hardcore audience. Pencil lovers don't have a lot of options. So you basically have the entire uh, attention of that whole group. Yeah, we do. It gets kind of daunting, really. I never thought I'd have so much power in such a like small community, but <laughs> it, it scares me a little bit. But um, it's kind of great. I'm also grateful because we've been able to help a lot of other shops learn more about this stuff, too. And I, I, I love being in the stationery industry. And I don't I'm not really one to look at all the other businesses who are selling regular instruments and feel, I don't feel competitive about that. I um, am really happy when other shop owners come to me and they're like, Oh, what you're doing is so cool. Like what can you tell me about all these things and where you get them and why they exist. And I, I love being able to share that knowledge to expand the community to places that aren't New York city. Baron fig has been tossing around the idea of opening up a physical store. Wow. Yeah. Surprise. <laughs> We have so many different goods now. It's actually a bit of a detriment because our research has kind of shown whether we have like two products or 20 products, a person will only stay on the website for X amount of time. Mm. And so they're, I think they're just seeing they're less and less. They're getting less exposed to the variety. But I think a physical store would, would help that. Oh, yeah. Thoughts on that? Oh, totally. I mean, I, I I really think like, yes, it's smart to have a shop online first, but I think the best way to do it is to have both because on the online store serves a purpose in spreading information and reaching other people who don't live where you are. But having a physical store is amazing because especially when you're selling tactile things, like to be able to allow people to come in and talk to you and try those things out like that, that experience makes such a difference. 
And truly too, like even from like a business standpoint, like when you have a physical, like a really cute physical store in New York City or any city, that's that's when you start getting a lot of press too. That's when people start showing up and start taking pictures and start posting them on Instagram. Like that's when that stuff really starts to spread because there's a physical place mm-hmm. that they can attach to the products. Um, but no, I think that's a great idea. There was a great shop across the street from us that just got rented. You guys could have moved in there. Oh, that'd be cool. They could walk across the street, get notebooks, go get pencils. Yeah, we could have like a stationary street fair in the summer. Oh, my God. A stationary barbecue. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'll keep an eye out for more empty storefronts. Cool. Thank you. So how does the then physical store play into the website? Were there unexpected things that came from that? Um, well, I think on, online about half of our customers are customers who have never been to the store. And a lot of the customers are on, online are people who came, who discovered us through the physical store because they were visiting New York City or they were just walking around one day and they were, they fell in love with the store and now they are extremely loyal online customers. And so it's, it's kind of been beneficial both ways having a physical store, but it's also, it's also great because we can, there's so much we can share online, especially on our website and also on Instagram. Like the number of people who come in every day and they're like, Oh, I follow you on Instagram. I can't even count them. It's so many people. So I read something about, I think it was Harry's maybe they said, when they opened up in a physical store in any city, the online sales in that city also went up. Yeah. That was pretty interesting. That doesn't surprise me because it's just another way to engage with people and to convince them to buying things. Right. So let's talk about the physical store then. I'd love to learn more of that. What are some of the biggest challenges of, of running it? Well, it's the thing that struck me most when we first opened the physical store was how much it differed what people wanted in the physical store and what people want online. In the store, people are either coming because they want just something cute and quick and memorable or because they want the full experience and they really want to try everything and they really want to find their perfect pencil. And that's that's a little bit more work, but ultimately it's really rewarding for them and for us. So stocking, I mean, it's funny, like we, when, when we receive, we are in our shop, we have a, like a storefront level and then we have a giant finished basement, which is where we do all of our online fulfillment. So everything is really in one place. And when we get new inventory and we're splitting it up between the shop and the downstairs fulfillment area, a lot of times, like I have to really think like, all right, well, this thing I know sells better upstairs, especially in the fall. So I'm giving 80% of the inventory to upstairs. And yeah, it's funny. That's always been surprising. But the the thing that is the most challenging in the physical store is maintaining this really, really high level of customer experience that we've become known for. Um, people expect to come in and the person who's sitting at the desk is going to know everything about everything. And they're going to engage and they're going to tell stories and they're going to help them pick things out and really help them understand what everything is. And we're, we're pretty good at that. And we work really hard to maintain that. But I think that's when you're going to have a physical store, you have to provide an experience. You can't just sit there and like, wait for somebody to buy something. It doesn't work like that anymore. Yeah. Oh, I hate when I walk into a store and the person's just behind the counter staring at their phone. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, especially when there's no one else in the store, but me. Yeah. The least you can do is say hello and ask how your day is. (laughs) All right. So you said for the people in your store, the people who work there, how do you get them educated on all of this, the different products? Well, I've been lucky that all the people who have come to me have come to me kind of organically and 
are already interested, which is a great way to start. But um, in the beginning, a lot of it was just I, I would spend time in the store with them for a couple of weeks until they kind of started picking up on the things that I was telling people. And I'd often ask them if they had questions. I'd like kind of quiz them on the various things that we had. But now it's a lot easier because I have a book. I can just kind of give them a copy of my book and be like, all right, pretty much everything you need to know is in here. Um, So it's a little bit easier. But a lot of it is just the repetition of stories. That makes sense. Speaking of the book, the name of your book is The Pencil Perfect, right? Yes. And uh, when did you publish that now? It was published in March of 2017. Wow. Yeah. I remember you telling me about writing it and working on it and working on it. So what was it like to put a whole book together? It was hard. It was so much harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, and this this was a project that I'd been fantasizing about for a while. It was something that I kind of figured would be in my like 10-year plan. And then um, a publisher came to me and asked me if I was interested in doing this book. And I, of course, was ecstatic and said yes. And um, I was given a very short deadline um, and not a lot of guidelines as to what direction we were going to go in. And so we just, we did decide to do like a kind of like easily digestible, very comprehensive history of the pencil from the beginning to the end. And it's kind of divided into sections that are their own stories. So you can flip through it and pick a section and just read that section and not read the whole book through if you want to. And there, I mean, the, there's been really one very comprehensive book written about pencils um, called The Pencil by Henry Petrosky. It was published in 1990, and it's extremely dense. It's very academic. There's a lot of information in there. And since then, nothing's really been written that shares this story. And we were interested in making something that was easy for a person who's not somebody crazy like me to understand and to be interested in. And so um, it was written just for like the everyday person who's just like vaguely interested in pencils. Um, And there are illustrations in it too. They had uh, an illustrator illustrate the book in pencil. So there are all these little drawings mixed in with the text. Yeah. The book itself as an object is absolutely gorgeous for since we're a podcast and we don't have any visuals. Imagine the front cover of the book is the same color as an eraser, right? Is there a name for that color? Not really. We just call it eraser pink. Eraser pink. And then the spine on the left is black and it's just super beautiful. And you open it up and you've got shades of gray, basically every shade of what a pencil can produce. Plus the accent colors are all in the eraser pink and it combines just this gorgeous, gorgeous book. Nice work. Thank you. Well, I can't take credit for any of that. That was all them. There, um, it was published by Just Stalton, and they're an art and design book publisher. This was their first text-based book that they've ever done. So everything they make is beautiful. It's designed like a coffee table book, even though it's mostly text. Did you say how how long did it take to write this? Well, it really. I did like the bulk of it in about three and a half months. It was a lot of work. I had to take a day off of work at the shop just to be at home to write every week in addition to all of the nights and all the extra days off I was doing. It was hard. It was really, really, really hard. I know now that if I were to write another book, I need to ask for a longer deadline. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, though. Yeah, but You were getting a ton of press. The store and yourself uh, before the book. So afterwards, did you kind of see the same thing happen? Yeah, it's... Um, it's been even this year, like we've had a lot of gr- amazing press. It's just kind of been consistent. 
and natural and just it's all happened very organically. It's um, really wonderful, I guess. We've only been open for three years, but we've had a lot of things happen, I guess. It start, all started with the big New York Times article and snowballed from there. And then the book came out and that was another little boost. And then we moved to a bigger store and then that was another little boost. And then this year we're developing a lot of new products of our own, which is exciting. And so that's going to be another little boost. It's going to, I guess, I don't know. It's not that I've planned all of this this way. It's just kind of happened that way just by chance, but it kind of is, I'm kind of lucky that I, every like six months or so, something exciting happens to get people interested again. Oh, that's fantastic. So I want to backtrack just one quick second and go back to when you decided to open up a store. What did your friends and family say about that? Well, I didn't really tell most of them. I told like my very close friends and family and nobody told me I was crazy necessarily, but um, they didn't really understand. And if I did happen, I, well, let me backtrack a second. I On my left forearm, I have a pencil tattoo that is to scale. It's just a very simple drawing of a pencil that my mother drew for me. And when you have a pencil on your arm, you get a lot of questions from strangers. And so there were some strangers who would ask me like, oh, like that's a cool tattoo. Why do you have a pencil on your arm? And I got kind of comfortable telling them like, oh, well, um, I'm opening a pencil shop. And those are the people who told me I was crazy. But um, I don't know. It just kind of happened. And even the day that we opened, I told like a handful of people that we were opening that day and didn't tell a single other person just because I was kind of scared. But um, it wasn't until after maybe like three or four months in when we started getting a ton of press that my mother called me and admitted that she was really scared and thought that I was losing my mind. Um, And only then did she realize that it wasn't a terrible idea once it was successful. I asked that because um, I feel like I went through the same thing. You know, what are you doing with notebooks? Nobody uses notebooks. Yeah. I think people who aren't like who aren't engaged in this like weird little analog world don't really understand. They just kind of make the assumption that this stuff is extinct and they don't really understand that there's an, an enormous community, like bigger than I ever imagined uh, this huge community of people who still use this stuff on a daily basis. Um, and the people outside of that world just really don't get it. Yeah, I agree. So what's your favorite pencil? Do you have one? I don't have a favorite. I'm not allowed to have a favorite. Well, I just, I mean, honestly, I started this store because I had a lot of favorites and I couldn't buy them all easily in the places where I lived. And I wanted a place where I could be able to get all the pencils. We have a customer who comes in every Friday and he's working his way in order across our shelves and buys one pencil every week and uses that pencil for the week. And he's just kind of like trying all of them. And like, that's what I want people to do. That's what I like to do. So for me, it's always something different. This week I'm using a a pencil that's new in our shop that's made by a Malaysian company called Oban. It's our first Malaysian pencil, and it's a really nicely made recycled newspaper pencil. A lot of people make pencils like that these days because they're eco-friendly and because they're easier to make than a wood case pencil. But this one is really tightly wound and very nicely finished, and it's a 2B core, so it's a little softer. I'm really enjoying it. It's a it's a joy to sharpen because all the little layers of newspaper fall apart really beautifully. What is a 2B? Um, so the, the pencil grading scale is numbered in combination with H's and B's. And an HB is the middle of the scale. And that's the equivalent of a number two pencil. Um, and 
if you are going in the direction of a softer pencil, it goes HB, B, 2B, 3B, 4B, all the way to 10B. And the higher the number, the more graphite it has in it and the less clay, which means it's going to be softer, it's going to be darker, it's also going to be smudgier. And then in the other direction, it goes F, H, 2H, 3H, whatever, all the way to 10H. And those get harder, which means that they have more clay in them. They're lighter. They hold their point better. They can be a little scratchy. They often like don't erase as well. Um, and there are different uses for different ones. But in a lot of countries, especially in Asia, a lot of countries, like for us, a number two is standard. But in a lot of countries, like a B or a 2B is standard. They prefer softer pencils. Like in Japan, there's a huge market of pencils for children. And the pencils for children are always a soft pencil you would never buy an hb number two pencil for a kid wow the difference between hardness and softness is about the balance between graphite and clay exactly because at the, at the very base of it a pencil is really just made out of water graphite and clay of course these days there are other things that go into it different types of polymer wax other additives that make it nicer to write with but yeah it's really just graphite water and clay so we might as well talk a little bit about uh, the pencil we've made since it relates. So we have a collaboration that started, I looked this up, February 2017, so a year and a half ago. Wow. I know, I know. Uh, it took so long to get these done. And it's called Elements. And Caroline and I sat down at a coffee shop downtown. Do you remember that? Yeah. And we were talking about it. it was, you know, I think I said, like, if you could make any pencil, you know, what, what would it look like? And you, you told me then that uh, you had just collaborated on a pencil and kind of made something you were dreaming of. And I was like, damn, there it goes. <laughs> but you were like, wait, I've got another idea. And it turned out to be uh, kind of a pencil that represents the elements that go into making a pencil. And so it's a two-tone pencil. Can you describe it? You're, you're going to do way better than I am. Oh, okay. Um, it's a, it's a two-tone pencil that at the top end has these really cute, tiny little illustrations of every single thing that a pencil is made out of. And the tube that it comes in kind of gives you this little, like this little like educational diagram about like what all those things, where all those things are in a pencil and what they do, which I think is really cool. I love, I love this pencil because it's, it's an education on a pencil, which is basically my dream. I mean, that's what I do all day is educate people about pencils. Right. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And I can, I can say that without taking credit because uh, Chandler designed this thing over here at Baron Fig and he just nailed it. Yeah, he really did. It's a really, really beautiful pencil. All the little drawings are adorable too. Yeah, I think there's, how many is there? Seven of them. Graphite, mm -hmm. wood, glue, paint, clay, water, and foil. Huh. I did not know that thing about um, graphite and clay. And I went to art school where I had a whole pencil set of B's and H's for drawing all different things. And I never really thought about, you know, what is actually making this happen. Well, shame on them for not explaining that to you. I know, right? That's really a bummer. Yeah, that's their fault. So straightforward. Anyway, so Elements is a collaboration, a year and a half in the making, and uh, it's on baronfig.com now. Caroline's going to have it, if you don't already have it. 15 bucks and you get a dozen... Beautiful pencils, all with the uh, little diagrams and whatnot on them. So I have a question if we go back to just pencils. I, I feel like I'm learning too much. 
in a good way here. So do you have like a go-to fact about pencils that you can tell someone that just blows them away immediately? Um, well, the most simple fact that you may already know is that pencils have never had lead in them. They have never been toxic. That is not a thing that really? anyone's ever had to worry about. What? That's a myth. But wait, isn't isn't the phrase lead pencil like that's a thing? Oh, it is say. a thing, but the origins are much different than people realize. Um, when graphite was first discovered in England um, hundreds of years ago, they discovered it on an uprooted tree that fell during a storm. And there was all this like black stuff stuck to the roots. And they were like, what on earth is this? And they dug it up, found all this really dark, like black graphite. And they didn't know what it was. I mean, what was the state of chemistry then? Like they had no idea what the substance was. And the closest thing they could liken it to was lead. And so they called it black lead for a long time, like for like a hundred years before they figured out like what this stuff actually was and gave it its own name. It was just called black lead. And that just kind of stuck. It's never really changed. And because it kind of looks like lead, people just always call it lead. Even pencil companies call them leads. Like it's just a word that's always been used with a pencil, but it doesn't mean that it has lead in it. It never has had lead in it. Maybe in the paint, some really early pencils that were painted probably had lead in the paint, but not in the actual pencil. Wow. I had no idea. Man, I need to read the book <laughs> and learn all about it. <laughs> Speaking of pencils, do you use pens? I do use pens. Um, very occasionally, I have a, one box of pens and two fountain pens, exactly. And I do sometimes use them. I write a lot of letters, and on some papers, I just prefer it. There's something really pleasurable about a pen. I can't hate on them. Cool. Okay, now I can respect that. All right. Wow, that's really great. So before we roll out, I always ask our guests if they can kind of impart a lesson onto our audience that they've learned, uh, depending on what you do. So for your case, I guess starting a business and or writing a book, if uh, our audience members wanted to do either of those, you could choose. You know, Is there one thing you would say is a good piece of advice to start with? Well, I guess... The best thing you can do is just stick to your guns and trust your gut and things will just kind of not really happen. But I I really think that there's something to be said about and, and maintaining your integrity when you're trying to start something crazy or something on your own, no matter how insane the idea seems. Because people, people see that. They can tell if you really care about what you do and that makes a huge difference. Mm. Well said. All right. That's a wrap for today's Thinker Talk. You can learn more about Eureka via eureka.baronfig.com. And Caroline, where can our listeners connect with you? They can find our website on cwpencils.com or on Instagram at cwpencilenterprise or in New York City on Orchard Street. Awesome. Thank you. And everyone, thanks for listening. Links to all the above are available in our show notes. And remember to subscribe to Eureka if you dig what we're up to. Until next time.